I'd like you to turn with me to verse 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter, but it's also the beginning of a new section that runs through the end of the following chapter. We, once again, are going to see Paul's heart for this young church that he planted, that he cared for. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 17 all the way to the end of chapter 3. And that helps us see where we're headed in the weeks to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. This is what the word of God says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord." For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Pastor and author Mark Dever has a short little book called Discipling. And the focus of the book is explained in the subtitle. The subtitle is How to Help Others Follow Jesus. And it's a book calling not just pastors, but all members of a local church to serve and to give their lives in service to one another. In the introduction of that book, 
Dever describes the phenomenon of more and more people living alone, and he cites an author named Eric Klinenberg who shares these statistics. In 1950, four million Americans lived alone, and that accounted for less than 10% of households. By 2013, which is when Klinenberg wrote his book, more than 32 million Americans lived alone, and they represented 28% of all households. I looked at the numbers from the 2020 census and found the number had jumped just a little bit between 2013 and 2020 to 37,000,000 one-person households in the country. According to Klinenberg, this is happening because people aren't valuing space so much as they value where they live. They want to live near the stores and the restaurants and the gyms that they prefer. Not the burger place, but working out at the gyms. He says the dominating factor in all this is convenience. It's more convenient to live alone. And it's interesting because more and more we hear in the culture people saying how connected we are because of internet and text messaging and social media. But more and more people, especially older generations, realize how drastic, meaningful relationships are declining. People simply like being left alone. Richard, last Sunday in the class, said he imagines a special plaque in hell for whoever made earbuds. It just cuts you off from people. Living alone is easier. Living alone is safer. There's no one to disagree with you in a major way that you have to live with. There's no major problems you have to work through in order to have a good night's sleep. There's no awkwardness. There's no discomfort. But if you've been a student of the Bible for any length of time, you know that's just not God's design for his people. That wasn't his design for Israel in the Old Testament, and it is not his design for his people in the church. The relationships between people in the church, the love we're supposed to be expressing and demonstrating is an expression of the love Christ has for his church. And the expression Christ, the love between Christ and his church is expressed in marriage. And so because of those connections, I think it's appropriate to draw connections between relationships in the church and marriage. Uh, Marriage is a mutually beneficial relationship. That's true physically, that is true spiritually. And going back to the beginning of creation, the first week, God in Genesis 2 looks down at Adam and he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he formed the woman. That's why he instituted marriage. He designed marriage for joy. He designed marriage for companionship. One of the things he did not design marriage for was convenience. Convenience is not one of the goals of a, an effective and, and healthy marriage. A good marriage is, is work. It's a sacrificial investment to serve the other person for their good and for the glory of God. It is a commitment that is not to be taken lightly. That had all been perverted by the time we come, and all through history it's been perverted, but especially in the New Testament, we come to the time of Jesus as he's talking with the Pharisees They had belittled the significance of marriage. They had erased the required commitment, and so divorce was rampant among them. Some historians say they would divorce their wife because they didn't like the way she made dinner. 
So Jesus, in Matthew 19, points them back to creation. God made this. He speaks of the, the sacredness of this commitment. He speaks of God's design. And the disciples who heard it responded like this. Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And maybe some of you agree with that. Hopefully you're not married already. Marriage, in their eyes, and to some people, doesn't seem to be worth all the trouble. I think they said in the United States, our mar- official, having children, you could say the same thing. It's not worth all the trouble. And I think the official uh, birth rate is now, we're declining. We're less than, you know, you need, a couple has to have two kids to at least keep the population the same. We're in decline. A lot of people feel the same way about involvement with others. And even in the church. Are meaningful friendships, are meaningful connections really worth all the work and the risks? But we come to the end of chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians and we find that the Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, would answer to us, yes, absolutely. If we look at this passage, we're going to be faced with some of the challenges that are connected to serving others, but we also see the reward. God describes in the New Testament the church as a body. We're a flock. We are a family. We're we're a temple, a building. And, And those images point to something that is made up of parts, but those parts are connected to each other. There's a commitment. We're a community. And living in community with others is not easy because your neighbor takes your parking space. The Bible never says it's easy to live in community. It just tells us there's a reward. And so these four verses we're looking at are going to give us four principles that are connected to living with others, serving others, living in community, orienting your life toward others for their good. I don't think this will be anything new, but it's a good reminder, and this is helpful to remind us what we're in for and what we should expect if we're going to follow the heart of Jesus Christ. These principles are also going to keep us from idolizing a false idea of community. I'm going to join a community and it's going to be wonderful. It will in some ways and at one time. But there are also some difficulties. And So let's start with principle number one. If you're going to live in community with others, if you're going to invest your life for the benefit of others, you need to be ready, number one, for painful separations. Painful separations. Look with me at the opening lines of verse 17. Notice how Paul describes his departure from the city. He says, we were torn away from you. That's the translation in the ESV. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. And he says, in person, not in heart. It's a Sharp image there to tear something away. I stuck something on my wall with these two-sided Velcro tabs and you're supposed to stretch the glue out and then it comes off and it doesn't do. One of my kids said, I wanted to see it and they yanked it off and said, what do you take with it? Paint and everything else, right? You tear something away. Well, that's a comical illustration but the word Paul uses is actually very serious. The word is actually connected to the English word for an orphan. 
Paul used a word that was used at that time in his time to describe children who had lost their parents or also used for parents who had lost their children. It was a painful separation. And for any of you who've lost a child or a parent, particularly at a young age, you understand there is a distinct kind of pain. There's a type of loneliness. There's a bereavement that doesn't go away. And that's how Paul describes his separation from the Thessalonians. Which is interesting because remember, he was only there a short time, maybe at least three, three weeks because he preached in the, in the synagogue for three weeks, but we don't know exactly how much longer he's there. And in that short time, his heart had been woven together with this young new church. He would have wanted to stay, he would have wanted to minister to them, but there were threats on his life and so he had to leave. And that came at great cost to Paul because he, he loved them. There was a distinct affection for them. We've been seeing that throughout this letter. And that made the separation worse. On top of that, he knew this church was going to face affliction, opposition, persecution, all of that without him there to protect them and to teach them. You might remember earlier in chapter two, Paul compared himself to a mother nursing her child. He, he says, I'm your spiritual father. That's how he acted before them. That's how he saw himself. And now he has to leave his children behind. For Paul, it was not out of sight, out of mind. So he says to them, we were separated in person, literally by face, but not in heart. We know from Acts 17 that Paul went on to the city of Berea, but his heart never left Thessalonica. His love for that church meant leaving them was agony. It was a painful separation, but that pain was an expression of his love for them. So what does that mean for us? Just thinking through that principle. If Paul had to endure this emotional pain and angst, it means that we need to be ready to face the same kind of affliction. If you're going to open your life and your heart to serve people, that means you will eventually have to say goodbye. Following the pattern of Jesus means you're going to face pain. That is part of the cost of ministry. You need to be ready for that. You need to be ready for that personally, and then we corporately need to be ready for that as a church. We're going to say goodbye. People are going to leave us for one reason or another. That's the pain of ministry. Sometimes those reasons are tragic from a spiritual perspective. Paul understood that. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about a former companion of his named Demas, and he says, Demas fell in love with the world and has deserted me. Later in the same chapter, Paul says, he went to trial in Rome and he says, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That's part of the pain of ministry. That's part of the pain of investing in others. There are going to be painful separations. And apart from Jesus Christ, who understood the pain of having those whom he loved and led leave him, apart from Christ, I don't think anyone in the New Testament is a greater example of ministry and faithfulness than Paul, but that came at great cost. And you need to be ready for that. Even if the separations don't come as a result of a spiritual tragedy, they're going to come nonetheless. People leave. People die. 
People get married, people go off to college, people get a job. Or maybe you're the one that has to leave for some other reason. Saying goodbye is part of what it means to live in community. You invest in people not really knowing when that relationship will have to part. That's the price of investing. That's what Paul faced. He was torn away from his children. As we continue in verse 17, we see a second principle, and it too describes the cost of ministry. Principle number two, if you're going to live in community with others, if you're going to invest in other people's lives, be ready for unmet desires. Unmet desires. There will be painful separations, and there will be unmet desires. Every husband and every wife I imagine knows this, to be in a relationship with someone is to have desires that are not going to be met. If you have committed yourself to someone, you're going to serve their needs, you will have desires or needs that are not met. That's the price of investing. That's the price of community. And you have to be ready. If you don't accept that as a fact, you're not going to be a faithful spouse or a faithful brother or a faithful sister. Look with me, the second half of verse 17. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. And and because of that separation, Paul continues, he says, we, talking of himself and the team, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, now he personalized it. I, Paul, again and again. When you study your Bible, you should slow down and you need to pay attention when you see something being emphasized, particularly with a lot of words. And the emphasis here is Paul's desire, his his heart. ESV says, we endeavored. The word speaks of an an energy, a a zeal, an, an exertion. We endeavored, we were diligent, and then he says, the more eagerly, and then he says, with great desire. We endeavored eagerly, with great desire, and then verse 18, we wanted to come to you. That was his desire. That's what Paul wanted. He would sit, he would thank and praise God for the Thessalonian church. He was, he was grateful to, to hear from Timothy that they were continuing, but he wanted to see them And he couldn't. And Paul tells this to the Thessalonian church, one, as a reminder of his love for them, and two, possibly, like we were saying earlier, as a defense to the false teachers. Because false teachers in the city were coming in, and it seems they're trying to undermine Paul's ministry. Well, you see, Paul, he's just in it for the money. He shows up, he takes a collection, and then he's gone. See, he left. He didn't come back. You see what kind of minister Paul is? And Paul says, no, 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 no. I did not abandon you. That's not what happened. I wanted to see you again and again. It just wasn't possible. I tried over and over. That again and again in the Greek is once and twice. And there's a debate as to how many times he may have tried. But we know it was more than once. It just couldn't happen. And so Paul had to live with that unmet desire. We live in a culture that says if you have a desire, we can fix it. There's a pill, there's an app, there's a TV show. Something's going to fix this for you. And so people don't like the possibility of an unmet desire. 
Some people will never allow those desires to develop. I don't want to get so connected because it's going to hurt when I can't see this person. That's not Paul's examples. He allowed his heart to intertwine with these people and then when he was separated, he desired, he longed to see them. And just thinking about Paul's desire to see this church, I think we can pause and especially in light of our cultural setting and all that's going on, you gotta ask yourself, is that how I feel about my brothers and my sisters in the church? Do I desire to see them face to face? I've heard pastors, I've heard church planters say things like this. Well, Paul, you know, he had churches he ministered to and he wrote them letters and letters were like the height of technology at the time. That's how he ministered. And today we have even greater technology. We have the internet, we have email, we have text messages and we need to take advantage of those too and and reach more people. And the logic there is sound. The caution is that we not allow technology to replace personal interaction. There's a difference. And the apostles knew that. Let me show it to you. Paul understood there was a distinct difference between writing a letter and personal ministry. Writing a letter was not a substitute. Jump down with me for a second to the verse we just read at the beginning, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. Why? To supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul, you wrote him a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a good letter. Leave him alone. No, I want to see them face to face. The Apostle John said something similar in his letter. Uh, let me read to you from John, 2 John, verse 12. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. He links personal ministry to a fullness of joy. There's something you get in a handshake, in a hug that you don't get in a text. John says the same thing in 3 John, verse 13. He says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. So you have apostles who are writing, moved by the Holy Spirit, holy scriptures which are going to endure forever, and even they, uh, those apostles, understand the immeasurable value of personal ministry. That's part of what it means to live in community with others. There's a desire to be with them. The ultimate expression of a personal connection is our own God and Savior, Jesus Christ, God in heaven comes down and he takes upon himself humanity. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, comes down and the word becomes flesh. That's the ultimate personal connection. He comes, he preaches, he dies as a sacrifice for sinners. He ascends, he returns to the father and he says, I'm coming again. And we will be with him forever. We will be with him him and so the question again is do you have that kind of desire 
Do you look forward to seeing the people of God? Do you, do you look forward to coming to Sunday, not just to hear a sermon, not just to sing worship songs? You can listen to a sermon at home. You can sing a song at home. But do you look forward to connecting with your brothers and your sisters? And if you have that desire to minister and to serve in the church, what does that look like throughout the week? We've talked about it in our own family life group. The, the, the culture of the New Testament is, is, is they're a lot more intimate. They're, they're, they're an agrarian society. They live together. The women had to go to the well. They would come back. You're working together in the fields. And our culture has separated us. And so we have to fight that. Having home groups, our family life groups during the week, that's a good start. But it's not intended to be the end. Well, I, went to home, I went to FLG. I showed up on Sunday morning. What more do you want from me? I don't have to see these people again for three days. That's not the heart of Christ. You need to, we need to, we're called to build one another up and you build one another up by building your life into other people, specific people. You allow your heart, like, like vines on a grapevine, you allow your hearts to intertwine. And then at the outflow of that, like Romans 12 says, you weep with those who weep, you rejoice with those who rejoice. In all that, we recognize that the joys and the desires of ministry are going to come with pain and difficulty. You're going to face times when you can't connect with others the way you'd like to for one reason or another. That's going to happen. You will have unmet desire. The desire should be there, but it won't always be met. And that doesn't always mean you're doing something wrong. Paul's life is evidence of that. It may mean you're doing something right. There are people who will go to prison for their faith and be cut off from the church. It's part of the pain of ministry. And, and it's important to understand that. And look, read these words again and say, Paul was living with this pain in his life, this difficulty, this unmet desire because he was being faithful to Christ. That's so important to remember because there are pastors today and preachers and, and church planners much more influential than others saying to their people, if you have enough faith and if you obey Christ, life is going to go great. Your finances, your relationships, your emotional state, your your social status, all that is going to be fine if you will follow Jesus Christ. And that is not the message of the New Testament. You're going to invest in people, you're going to love people, and you're going to have to say goodbye. And you're going to have to potentially not see them for a time. That's what it means to follow Christ. Following Jesus brings pain. There's the pain of separation and then there's a the pain of unmet desires. We need to be ready for that. Let's look at a third principle. If you're gonna live in community with others, if you're gonna invest in other people's life, number three, be ready for satanic opposition satanic opposition. This is an interesting principle to think about, but it's what we see at the end of verse 18. Paul says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. The word there in Greek has the idea of cutting into. You cut off someone's path. That might happen in war. You cut off, the, you, you break up the road so the armies can't travel. There's a type of blockade here And Paul's statement here is a reminder that Satan is the enemy of God. Satan is opposed to God's plans, God's designs. And if 
God desires personal ministry between his people, Satan's going to oppose that. Satan is going to try and get in the way of God's people connecting meaningfully, meaningfully to one another. And he does that through the culture. He does that through a busy schedule. He does that through a busy Saturday night to keep you from getting here on Sunday. He can do that in all kinds of ways. I remember hearing a pastor say, I don't know where Satan is. He had little kids. He said, I don't know where Satan is the rest of the week, but on Sunday morning, Satan's in my van trying to keep me from getting to church on time and with the right heart. We will face satanic opposition when we want to meet meaningfully and connect with others. In terms of Paul's life, obviously one of the obvious questions here is, well, what was Satan doing? How exactly was Satan hindering Paul and his team? And the simple answer is we, we don't know. There are a variety of speculations, but we just can't be sure. Some people think it was something physical, maybe a sickness in Paul. Others think it was spiritual. Others think it was political regarding uh, laws and where he could travel or not. It could have been something happening at a different church that Paul had to deal with so he couldn't get back to Thessalonica. We just don't know what it was. But whatever it was, I think it's likely that the Thessalonians knew what Paul was talking about. And the main reason Paul is saying this is so they would know that the reason he hadn't come back to them was not because of a lack of desire. It's interesting, too, that Paul has other hindrances in his life and in his ministry that he doesn't attribute to Satan. In Acts 16, it says Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He tried to go into Asia Minor. It says the Holy Spirit forbade us. Forbade? Forbade? I don't know. Then it says, Acts 16, his team attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So when is the hindrance from God and when is the hindrance from Satan? It's not entirely a fair question because they may not be working in the way that we, we tend to think here's Satan and here's God, but that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is here's Satan working and here is God working in everything. Just because Satan is working, it doesn't mean that God is not working because God is always working. Satan's work is not independent of God's sovereign plan, right? You have to know that. You have to have that confidence. Satan, for now, is the God of this world, but he has not dethroned God, and he never will. So just to put it in biblical examples, think about Job's life. Was it God's plan, or was it Satan's plan to afflict Job? Whose plan was it? Well, if you read the story, you go, it's not that easy. God says, have you noticed Job, a righteous man? And then Satan says, he's only righteous because you bless him so much. Take away his blessings and then see what he says. And God allows Satan to afflict him. God did not directly afflict Job, but in his sovereignty, he used Satan's little plan to afflict Job as part of a greater plan to strengthen Job's faith and then to give us his example in scripture. Along the same line, you think about other evils in the Bible, the story of Esther. Whose plan was it for Haman to threaten and to kill all the Jews? Was that Satan's plan? Was that God's plan? Again, all of this is under the sovereignty of God, so he would be exalted as their savior. Who planned for Herod to kill the babies in fulfillment of scripture? Who planned, ultimately, 
and the greatest evil to have Jesus be killed. Who planned that? The Bible says Satan entered into Judas's heart and then he betrayed him and that led to Jesus' death. But Jesus himself, we're also told in scripture, understood that he would die as part of God's plan. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The early church understood this. In Acts chapter 4, one final example, the church experiences persecution, and they're praying in response to persecution, and in that prayer of Acts 4, they say, all that Herod did, all that Pontius Pilate did, was simply whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. So we don't want to think about Satan working as one side of a spectrum and then God working on the other side. There's no match in power. And Paul understood that. We don't want to take his statement here to mean Satan had ripped power from God and stopped something that God intended to happen. Paul's statement here is simply a recognition to us that we have an enemy and he's going to bring difficulty. We're going to face challenges to ministry. We're going to face barriers in trying to connect with others. But even in those difficulties, we should have the confidence and the contentment to know God's still in control. It's possible that in the moment, whatever Paul was facing, he would have received it. I think it's likely he would have received it as God's sovereignty. And maybe in hindsight, he would look back and say, that was from Satan. In this case, too, his, his point is to speak of his love, and so I think if he would put it under the big, it is, though it is under God's general sovereignty, had he done that, I think he would have sounded flippant. Well, I tried to come to you, but you know, it wasn't the Lord's will, and trying to put that on, on God, and that happens at times. I'll be there tomorrow, Lord willing. Lord willing means if I wake up on time. You know, you put it on God. Blame God instead of me. I, Paul's not trying to do that. He's trying to say, I was trying to go, but... Satan hindered us. Again, under the sovereignty of God, but his emphasis is, this is not what I wanted. This is, this is painful. This hurts. And thinking about the possibility of Satan hindering us and putting barriers in our lives, I want you to, you can keep your place because we'll come back, but go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a passage that is familiar, I think, to a lot of you, but there's an important principle I don't want us to miss. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. I just want you to see an example of how Paul theologically put this in his life, in his writing. The beginning of the chapter, 2 Thessalonians 12, is Paul describing his glorious visions. This is part of the revelations he received as an apostle. He says in verse 2, he was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise, verse 3 says. And then look at verse 7. He says, so, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the greatness, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. To whom does Paul attribute his thorn in the flesh? There's, there's a debate as to what it is. Some people think it's physical. Some people think it's spiritual. Some people have said it was his mother-in-law. I don't agree with that, just so you know. 
this thorn in the flesh, he says, is from Satan. That's what he says. This thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. And what's the purpose? He says, the goal of Satan is to harass me, to afflict me, to make my life difficult. But behind Satan's intent, Paul understands there is the purpose of God. And that's how Paul starts the verse, and that's how Paul ends the verse. He, he, he sandwiches Satan's goal, lowercase g, if you will, with God's goals and God's purposes. The beginning of the verse, verse 7, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. And then the end of the verse, to keep me, he says it again, to keep me from becoming Conceited, So he knew Satan did this to make my life hard, to harass me, but God did it to keep me humble. He understood there were divine purposes even within the workings of Satan. God's purposes are always greater than Satan's purposes. And so we can take the same approach to difficulties and especially difficulties in relationships. These things are, are difficult. Satan is bringing whether it's division or disunity or arguments, my marriage, my, my kids, whatever. But God's going to use this. And we talked about that in the peacemaking uh, series that we did some time ago. God's using this to sharpen us and to strengthen us. The day will come when we're no longer going to face Satan's opposition. And until that day, we know the Lord still reigns. God Rules And in God's sovereignty, even though Paul was separated from the church that he loved in Thessalonica, even though that grieved him, we know in his sovereignty, it's what led him to plant more churches. And then it's what led him to write scripture as he wrote these letters. So you and I need to be ready to face that. We're going to face opposition from Satan. And no matter how it comes, we can face it with confidence and with contentment because God's still in charge. God's still in control. We just need to be prepared for that opposition. You can turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've got a little list going. If you're going to be like Paul, if you're going to be like Jesus, if you're going to invest your life for the sake of others, if you're going to pour into others, if you're going to connect with them, what are you going to get? What are you going to face? You've got painful separations, unmet desires, and satanic opposition. Jesus said, count the cost. That's a high cost, right? That is not going to be easy. But now we come to the final principle, and it's the reward. This is the trade-off. This is what makes it all worthwhile. Principle number four. If you're gonna live in community with others, if you're going to invest in the lives of others, be ready for eternal joy. Eternal joy. Paul, in the previous verse, is discussing his pain, his suffering. He's discussing his satanic opposition. But that isn't a reason to get down for Paul. His reference to Satan is, is a footnote. It's a parenthetical note. Yeah, we tried. We tried to come to you, but Satan opposed us. His focus, though, is love, his joy, his connection to them. And why did he love the church so much? Why did he pursue that reunion? Look at verses 19 and 20. He says it in, in question form. For, that for is the explanation, not for Satan, but for his desire toward them. I love you. Why? Because what is our hope or joy? 
or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. How many of you in here are parents? Raise your hand. You're a parent. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Parents. Not, it's maybe half right around there. Spanish was like everybody almost. So it's interesting. Keep, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you're a parent. You have kids, whatever age they are. Okay. How many of you would say being a parent is hard? There is some difficulty. There is some pain. Keep your hand up. If it's easy, drop your hand. Yeah, every hand stays up. Two hands went up. I see that. I see that hand. Okay, you can put your hands down. Almost, I think, unanimous. This is part of what it is to be a parent. Now, I'll ask you one more question just to think about, but don't raise your hands on this. Given all the difficulties, given all the pains of raising children, if you could, would you go back in time and erase your children and make, just never bring them into this world? For the vast majority... I'm going to assume the answer is no. Parents don't do that. Why not? Because there is a profound joy that children bring, right? That's how Paul felt. Paul thought about this church like a proud dad, like a joyful mother, and that joy was not connected just to the past. It was connected to the future. It was an eternal joy. Paul ministered to the church, not just looking at their life, not just trying to fix their home or their budget or their families. His goal as a shepherd was to help his people look more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul was an agent. He was an instrument of God in the sanctification of these people. His objective, like Ephesians 4 says, was that they would grow up into maturity, and that is into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so his goal, what he's looking forward to is that day, verse 19 says, when it says that Jesus at his coming or his appearing, one day Jesus will come and the fullness of his glory and his power will be revealed. And in that day, these precious saints who before Paul were new Christians, so in Spanish, mocosos, Christians, babies, one day he would see them perfectly glorified by the grace of God. And Paul will see them in perfection and know he had a part to play in their final sanctification. That brought Paul tremendous joy. And that's the kind of heart we have to have when we minister to one another in the church. We look around, we say, that's my brother, that's my brother, that's my sister. And they're a work in progress and so am I. But one day we will be in heaven with the Lord and there will be no sin. And in the meantime, you and I have a part to play in helping move someone along and they have a part to play in our life. We're being sanctified together. We're working on one another's lives and we're gonna see the fruit of that for all eternity. Kids are difficult there's pain, there's trouble, but when that kid finishes a season or a league or high school or college and they get that trophy or they get that reward or they get married and everything has been done right, what do mom and dad feel? Joy and pride. It was a tremendous joy. Some people don't like the word 
pride. I'm a proud father. And I think there are times where I felt that. But just looking at this passage, we understand that pride can be used in a negative way. You can have arrogance. I did this. But there's a positive aspect to that. We know, we know that when we say, I felt so proud of my son when he did this or that thing. We're talking about a shared joy. We're talking about a satisfaction in knowing that we had a part in what they're experiencing. That's what Paul says about them. He says, you are my hope. You are my joy. You are my crown of boasting, which again, traditionally is a negative issue, a negative thing. You're not supposed to boast. No one's gonna boast before the Lord. But he says, you're my crown of boasting. It takes a word that's usually used in a negative sense and used it positive. I'm gonna boast over you. Back then, when you had a, a, a king or a general who returned from war and they were victorious, they had a crown. It was usually, it could be made of gold, but of leaves or someone won their event in the Olympics. Even back then, they wore this crown and, and that crown symbolized joy and triumph and victory. It is a crown of boasting. It doesn't have to be arrogant boasting. It can be a victorious joy matched with gratitude and humility. So that's how Paul ends this chapter, verse 20. You are our glory. You are our joy. And it's not minimizing that Christ is our glory and Christ is our joy, but part of the experience of Christ will be Christ in the church and we'll have that in heaven. You are our glory. You are our joy. Paul is saying to the church, you are part of the reason I'm gonna be celebrating for all eternity. You're gonna make it there. I'm gonna make it there. We'll be together. There will be no sin and we'll be praising God for what he's done. What a joy it is to know that we will have played a part in the lives of other people. We can play a part in their salvation, we can play a part in the ongoing sanctification, and we're gonna be there pushing them toward their final sanctification. So again, as much as Paul looked back on his time with the Thessalonians, he looked forward to a final reunion And I think that's part of the reason why, if you go back to verse 17, he says, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. I don't think he felt like that at the moment. When you're separated from someone or something you love, it doesn't feel like a a short time. It feels like an eternity. But Paul was looking at actual eternity. And looking through that lens, he knew any pain, any separation was temporary. Peter says the same thing, after you've suffered a little while. Paul knew that whatever pain he felt over the church was going to be overshadowed by the joy of seeing them again in the perfection of heaven with Christ. So take some moments and do that. When you greet people, when you say hello, don't just see them for who they are today. Think about seeing one another in the perfection of heaven. Think about how God then can use you to move them in that direction, whether it's your children, your spouse, and your brothers and sisters in the church. Let that motivate you to invest in their life. It's so sad to know that in our culture there are people who instead of investing in the eternal good of others, are more concerned with and more consumed with earning digital rewards in a video game or teaching your dog to do new tricks or watching your plants grow or making sure your car is nice and shiny. 
How can we, as the people of God, allow those things to be more important to us than the sanctification of our brothers and our sisters? We're called to invest in the lives of others for their spiritual growth, like Paul did, like Jesus did, and we will receive an eternal reward with great joy. When you are with us on a Sunday morning, those of you who are members, you come. You're not here simply, well, I'm a member, now I have to go to church. You come, and you need to come and recognize you're, you're part of a family. We are the body of Christ. And whether you're a very prominent member of the body or whether you're a more inconspicuous part of the body, God wants to use you to help others follow Jesus so they can look more and more like him. God did not intend for any one of us to be separated from his people. He intended you as his child to live in genuine community with one another. And yes, there will be pain. Yes, there will be challenges. Yes, there will be opposition. It's not gonna be comfortable. It's not gonna be convenient many times, but there is an eternal joy that awaits us when we delight in the Lord and in one another forever. Let me dismiss this with Paul's benediction in chapter 3, verse 11. And we're going to get to this in a few weeks. But let me read it for us. 1 Thessalonians three eleven. Now, may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.